Um, I'm going to welcome Mark up. Mark, uh, another round of applause. Can't hurt. <clears throat> Mark is the senior leader of Red Church. He is the author of, I've lost count of how many books, I think it's five, six, working on his seventh. Yep. Um, and this is a man who is a prophet, not in the rah-rah sense of the word, but in the deep sort of Old Testament sense of the word, reminding us of another bigger story that is desperately wanting to intersect with us today. A prophet is more than a microphone. In fact, they're not a microphone. They're a human being that is called to live out the message that they're sent to speak. And so Mark lives the message he's about to speak out. So this isn't just a nice little seminar. This is actually the story of his life and the story of how he has encountered God and is seeing God work in him. I'm going to get a drink of water. You can speak. (laughs) Thank you. Wow, this is a very uh, interesting microphone. Um, it's like really comfortable on my chin. Um, I did used to have the habit of letting microphones drop, so I developed the habit of, of putting them on my chin. And when you haven't shaved, it can create a scratching sound. But this is just fantastic. Um, well done to Daniel. I, hopefully you crafted this last night um, in front of the TV. Um, I wanted to really begin today by just laying out, I think, a bit of a macro plan for what I think God is doing at the moment. Um, as Sarah mentioned, this, is, uh, this thing that we're putting on every year is called Rebuilders. And really, this is, came from a desire to go in an opposite spirit to what so many people were feeling, that there was a sense that faith and the church was in some kind of terminal decline. And this has been a real question that, in many ways, has taken up a lot of the work of my life, understanding what's going on, understanding how God wants to turn things around. And what I wanted to do, really, today was just outline for you um, a sense of how God renews moments. And before I wanted to get into what God wants to do, I had to disassemble some, I guess, myths in our head and concepts that we have floating around that are in the, in the soil of our culture and even um, in our own heads and in the church. And the first one was something which I call um, the secular myth. And there's a whole study of secularism and there's some fantastic books around. I think secularism exists. It means different things in different places. Um, and how people use it, but there's a really like street-level, crude understanding of how the vast majority of people, you know, understand it. So there is the French lassite, which is this concept of keeping, you know, politics and religion separate. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you ask the average punter on the street what they think secularism is, or even the average punter in the pew what they think secularism is, it looks something like this. That at some point, who knows when, probably the Middle Ages, let's say the 1400s, everyone went to church in the Western world. And slowly, as we've gone through the different centuries, that is dropping off. And before we can really talk about renewal, we have to, in a sense, disassemble this very crude, let's call it a folk understanding of secularism, hence why I call it a myth. Now, what's interesting about myths is they may not be true, but sometimes they contain elements of truth, which is why they're so resilient. But I just wanted to say, to help us take apart the secular myth, we need to understand something. That is that the secularist myth is actually a religious concept. And it's a religious concept which people are losing faith in. In the last two years, you have seen a profound change in how we're talking about ourselves as a culture. You go back and you go on the internet, and you go back, and you can do this, where you go back and read, say, the New York Times in 2006, or The Age in 2006, and you will see completely different stories with a completely different tone to what you're reading now, 10 years difference. When you go back before the rise of populism across the world, before the real rise of global terrorism as it came into Western cities increasingly, go back before the global financial crisis... And there was this belief 
that something was happening, but that story now feels like it's run aground. And one of the really interesting things, Jamie Smith says this, that whilst in a secularist age, people who are religious doubt, but equally in this secularist moment, people who are secular are doubting their own story. And that's fundamental to grasp. So, to understand why it's a secularist myth and why it's a religious concept, we need to go back into the biblical story. And I'm going to do this in a really sort of, I guess, pictorial way with um, a really sort of quick, overarching exploration of the Bible. Now, if you look at how the Scripture begins, we have the story that we find in Genesis of God creating the world. The presence hovers above creation. The waters are chaotic and God speaks a world into being. He creates a garden called Eden and His presence is totally there. The beautiful imagery and the way that the the Scriptures describe it is that He's almost walking around. There's a bit where Adam and Eve mention God walking around in the afternoon. So as you'll see You know, if you have a break of coffee, you'll see people walking up and down this street, present, they're here, they're going for a walk, maybe they're walking down to the shops. This is what God's closeness, what theological language says, is imminence to us. He is there. Now, what's really interesting is we often think that what God's plan was, it can almost seem in how we read these stories, he had this little Eden and he was just going to hang out there and then the rest of the world, what is going on there? Have you ever thought about that? Here's Eden. What's happening in the rest of the world? Is that just like some out of space rock planet uh, that is totally irrelevant? Well, I'm not going to go through all the verses now because we haven't got time. But if you read the scripture and you read Psalms, you read the Old Testament, you see that God's plan was for his glory and his presence to invade the entire world. Now, he commissions Adam and Eve to act as these stewards, these high priests in the world who then go into creation and expand Eden. So the original plan is for God's glory to take over the whole world and the whole world to become Eden. That is a place where God's presence is everywhere. So that's really how the Bible sets out the plan. But we know the story that we have the fall. Humans have a revolution against God. They don't trust His presence. And they rebel. And the interesting thing is, what results from the rebellion is a withdrawing of God's presence. And a new force comes into the world. And the new force that comes into the world is sin and brokenness. To use the biblical language, it's flesh. So we move from a sort of map, as you can see here, where we have Eden, which is moving to God's future, which is the whole of creation filled with His glory, humans working in partnership with God as His regents, stewards, priests in the world, and the whole world operating like His temple. That was the plan. But the fall then changes the world to look like this. We have the beginning point of Eden, but then we have the fall. And we have this growing sense. As you read through Genesis, there's not just one fall. It's like dominoes, which don't just fall in a singular line, but branch out into sub-branches and keep falling and falling. The murder, the chaos, the brokenness. Till we get to the point where the flood, where the world is literally enveloped in chaos and death. And that just goes on and on. And we get to the point... And again, too, we could tell this story in a longer sense, but we get to the point where at the end of the Old Testament, the people of God are crying out. God is trying to bring His presence back. It it is in these forms, like we see it when He talks to Abraham. We see the presence breaking out when He calls His people. They have a tentative meeting where His presence is, but it has to be sort of cut off from the world because the world is overrun by flesh and the world can't take His presence because... He is holy and He is separate. And then God intervenes in the most incredible way. We all know what this is. We have it hanging on the wall here, the cross. And God shows that He's not going to let the world completely trend towards chaos and death. 
that his original plan at the beginning of Scripture to see the entire world filled with his glory, filled with his presence, to see humans in their original design to be regents and stewards of the world. And Jesus does this in the most incredible way, where the price for chaos and death is taken upon him. And what he does is he takes that sin, becoming the sacrificial lamb in the temple of the world. Have you ever thought that? He becomes the sacrificial lamb in the temple of the world. And in the temple in Jerusalem, as he dies on the cross, the curtain is ripped from top to bottom, symbolizing now that his presence is going into the world. And just as his sin, like collapsing sorry, not his sin, but our sin, like collapsing dominoes, then went throughout the world in a series of falls. What we see falling on from Jesus' death is a similar domino-like move, but instead of falls into sin, we see moves into redemption. The Spirit falls on the people of God. The church spreads through the world. And these stories of the upside-down kingdom are now going. This is the time we live in. We live in the time now, somewhere around here, where His presence is going into the world. The kingdom is breaking in. It's here. It's not here yet. But we see tastes of it. And we know that our future, whether Christ returns before we pass or that we go to live with Him on our deathbeds, that the future is going to be God's. And we see in Revelations 22, 23, we see the world again as the new Jerusalem, as the cosmic temple. So his plan is to fill the world with his presence. His plan is to, again, see us made as partners with him in that process. So that's the scheme. That is written into the fabric of the universe. This is, this is reality. This is the truest form of reality of how the world works that's ever existed. This is how things are going to go. This is a cheat sheet on what's going to happen. And so it's written into us. But we know too that the resilience of human sin still exists. We know that there's a choice to follow Jesus or not. And so in particularly the West, where we live, the place which in some times was deeply touched by this story, this other temptation comes. And the temptation comes, we're slowly inch by inch, and I'm not going to tell you this story right now, I could, but the process of secularism where the truth is, is that it takes this scheme, but it tries to do it inch by inch. The last 300 years of the story or 400 years are like, humans, we want this. But we don't want to rely on the presence, we want to rely on our own strength. So we're just going to do that bit. But that inch goes, becomes you know, 10 centimeters, becomes a meter, becomes a kilometer, becomes hundreds of kilometers. And slowly where you arrive at in 2016, what year is this? 2018. <laughs> 2018. Wow. That's been a big year. That we arrive at this point of a post-Christian society. What is a post-Christian society? A post-Christian society is not a society that's done away with everything about Christianity. No, it wants the Christian scheme. It wants this scheme. But it wants it without the cross. It wants it without death to self. It wants it, the kingdom, without the king. And so, this now we're starting to understand about the secularist myth. Now we're starting to get to the roots of this belief. We're starting to see that actually what it's done is taken a bad facsimile of Christianity and it's put on that photocopier and it's photocopied it again and it takes the copy and it photocopies that and then it takes the copy of that and it keeps copying and copying and the outlines are some, somewhat there but it's blurred and it's messed and it's no longer the original plan that God wants. So the West, in all its secularism, is deeply Christian. Richard Dawkins who was one of the famous new atheists that really grew after September 11th. And Richard Dawkins gave a talk, I think hours, I think it was, or the day after September 11th, and that's when his movement really began. And his movement was that religion is ruining the world. 
But recently someone, I think it was like a year or two ago, someone said, yeah, but Richard, all the stuff you talk about is there's an element of Christian morality to it. You're a cultural Christian, admit it. And what's interesting on Twitter, he just wrote back, yes, I am a cultural Christian. Stephen Fry, another famous atheist, the British comedian, admits that he sees that he's deeply shaped by Christianity, even though he's Jewish and secular, that the this Christian story has shaped Britain, and he said he can go to a church and sing those songs. So, so much of secularism in the West, even from those who are most opposed to Christianity, still has these Christian contours, but they want the elements of it without Christ's Lordship. So, we end up with this kind of model which looks something like this. If this is God's scheme, this is something of what Western secularism looks like. Here we are now, this is our Eden, and we're moving not to God's future. We're not moving to the end of the age where heaven and earth are reunited, where sin's wiped out of the world, where goodness reigns. We're moving towards that, but it's a human version. It's what Thomas More called utopia. Now, what's really interesting is Thomas More wrote that book, Utopia, and utopia means no place. And Thomas More was saying that utopia can't exist. You can't actually get there, really. But we have this floating concept of a utopia. So you think about the language that we talk about to describe our political processes now. As a culture, we've progressed. On that issue, you want to be on the right side of history. That view is from the Dark Ages. People in those countries who are backward. All of this language presumes that some kind of secular version of the Christian story is occurring. So what is progress? Progress in this is humans getting smarter. And in some sense, that's true. There is a natural reality in the world that we can get a bank of knowledge and we can learn how to get better cars to make them crash less. We can look at what sort of tires work well on particular roads and have peer review studies where we look at that around the world and slowly pull our knowledge. That happens. Technology also, we can improve. Our scientific knowledge, we can improve. But how this myth runs aground is it then presumes because we can improve scientifically, because we can improve technologically, and even some of our political sciences we can improve. But it then presumes that we can improve morally. That we can improve morally. Now, the other thing behind this is undergirding this belief that we can improve morally is a presumption which Dawkins, etc., believe that actually the reason that there still is sin in the world, and secularists believe in sin as much as, as, much as Christians, that there's still sin. They may not use the word sin. They'll talk about bigotry. They'll talk about prejudice. They'll talk about violence. They'll talk about hatred. These things exist in the world, and this is now a 300 or so year old tradition. Why do these things exist in the world? Why are they still here? Why is progress held back? Why are we not at utopia yet? We're not there, and you can see this from the beginnings of the Enlightenment, about 300 years ago, when people started questioning stuff, because of religion and superstition. So as we abandon religion, as we abandon superstition, we can move towards this place of progress. So there's a link between the two. So we have to leave that stuff in the past. This is why we're at your workplace, you mention you're a Christian, and people are like, oh, it gets awkward. In some countries you, which are not secular, you mention you're a Christian, oh, yeah, cool, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a you know, Hindu, yeah, whatever. Let's have coffee. Um, but the fact is that when you're mentioning it, you're mentioning something which is then, you're like, oh, You're almost against this progress. Now, then there's a second question, because what happened was, around the year 1900, it was predicted 
sorry, actually at the beginning of the 19th century, it was predicted by the year 1900 that they actually believed, this was serious scholars were, were predicting that by 1900 there would be no religion left in the world. Now, some people took this a bit further and say, we'll come to this sort of kind of religion, which is like a progress where all the religions melt into one and we take the pure truths of that and we bring it under the lordship, if you like, of progress and then maybe there's something. Obviously, what happened was that religion did not disappear in the 20th century. In fact, what happened in a global sense was that actually religion grew. And there's more religious people now. As Jonathan Sachs says, the world's getting less religious and more religious at the same time. So this is, helps you understand why the shock, the utter shock of September 11th wasn't just that it was a terrorist act. It was like, hang on, who the heck are these guys in Afghanistan who believe this Salafist, jihadist belief that we don't even understand? I mean, it, took, it honestly took the news media like 15 years to work out what these guys believed. And that religion still at play in the world. I, I heard an interview with, um, uh, I think his name's Francis, uh, I'd say Damien Thompson, who's the religion um, correspondent for the Spectator magazine in England. And he said he had the Ministry of Defence come to him, the British Ministry of Defence, and say, can, we, can you just explain religion? We do not get it. We thought it was over. We realise we can't operate in the world as the Ministry of Defence anymore without understanding religion, and we just do not get it. And you're how stupid are you? How blind are you to the reality of human life on planet Earth? And so, this concept then saw, okay, because there's multiculturalism and we want the, the, the progress, people believe that oh, let's move towards this and, and we'll bring people into the West and we'll believe in multiculturalism. But really what they believe was, let's bring them in here and after a couple of generations, they're going to leave all that religious superstition stuff behind and get with the program and we'll just have their nice curries and Vietnamese rolls and, but they'll get with the program and their kids will become secular. That's really what it was. But it doesn't happen. Because humans are built for meaning. Humans have holes for transcendence. Humans actually desire the presence. And so this sort of hedge became about, like, we'll accept certain religion and we'll accept religion, but only if it bows down at the altar of progress. So, okay, believe that stuff, but don't believe it too much. Christian, that's nice. What sort of church do you go to? Where, where, where are you? Are you a Muslim? Are you a conservative Muslim or are you a more progressive Muslim? And so this language then even began to affect religion. And even the fact that people either call themselves progressive Christians or conservative Christians means that you've just basically bought into this schema. So you're either going with it and believing that it's going to save everything or you're resisting it but you're still actually accepting this schema. So, and this is absolutely key to understand. This is so key. The secularist myth is progress without presence. The secularist myth is progress without God's presence. I might get you, Bjorn, to actually turn that heater off because... I might explode in flames at any moment. And so what happens is because this follows this kind of model where our technological ability is growing, where our scientific ability is growing, we're expanding into the world, where we're running into utopia. We have companies that no longer just like, we're going to sell bleach to make your T-shirt white. Now we have companies like Silicon Valley, which is literally Facebook. We're going to connect the world. And essentially, they're actually promising us utopia. You've now got companies saying, you know, we, we, you know, buy your bottled water with us. Actually, that's a bad example. Buy, buy, buy this with us, and we're committed to all these values. There's an element where that's good, but the problem with it, it pushes into utopian thinking. And it's always going to let us down. So Facebook begins with this thing, we're going to connect the world. And their stock is just falling, and their image is falling because they can't pull it off because they're actually trying to do connection and fellowship 
which is deeply intertwined in us as human beings. But they're trying to do it through human means, and that's just a losing story. So the secularist myth is progress without presence, and what that means, it will increasingly deliver you as people formed and shaped in an environment. Now, what's interesting, too, is this secularist myth, which is written into everything. It's written into politics. It's written into consumerism. It's written into corporations. It's written into, ed- uh, written into education. Is We as humans are formed by this. Every day, increasingly, you have thousands of messages targeted at you to sell products using this myth. I mean, at first it was like, I remember at first, before the internet, I remember like hearing early on reading this stuff at the beginnings of the internet when people were like, oh, McDonald's has this plan for you now. They're going to have a plan for you. And this was like in the late, uh, early, early 90s, a plan for you from when you're born and they're going to market at you from when you're born. And then it goes to targeting ads. And then it goes to banner ads that follow you with cookies. And then we find, hang on, now there's actually recording us. And our phones are recording everything you say. This happened to me the other day. I was talking to my publisher and, um, on FaceTime. And we're talking. And at the end, he said, oh, I'm actually going to be in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I'm coming to Singapore. And oh, I love Singapore. Have you been to Singapore before? Where are you staying? Where are you flying in? We had this whole conversation for like 10 minutes about Singapore. I then am working that afternoon. And I'm listening to Spotify. And what starts coming up on Spotify? Singapore Airport. Cheap flights to Singapore. I'm like, you're kidding me. And so you have this. And I was listening to another interview with um, a guy who worked for Cambridge Analytica, which is the firm which was part of all the scandals around Facebook's data, who basically worked not just on the American election, but worked on elections around the world. And what he was saying was, what they're doing with this data is... They're not just taking this data and like, here's a message. They now have not just a map of you, they have an emotional map of you. So somewhere in Silicon Valley, in some mainframe, is you, everything you've written on Google ever, every email you've ever written, increasingly everything you ever say within distance of a mobile phone, everything you've purchased, where you go, your morning walk, what music you listen to. Now what they're doing is they're actually building an emotional map. So they know that between August... 27th and August 31st, you're the most depressed you are in a year. And then you listen to sad music. And the words in your, in your Gmail are actually more depressing and like miserable. I'm blocked at the moment. And they will then target not just ads to make you buy soap. They're now targeting political ads. So when you're most afraid, here's the ad about the fear of the outsider to vote for this people or to vote for this person as this this party and so deeply shaped by this and what this is doing is making us be people who live without the presence the secularist myth is progress without the presence and we're increasingly shaped and taught to live a life without God's presence Marshall Berman says this in his book all that is solid melts into air to be modern is to find ourselves in an environment that promises us adventure power joy growth transformation of ourselves in the world and at the same time that threatens to destroy everything we know everything we are and so the direction to push us towards utopia in the last two years has increasingly been shown as a sham. We're becoming less happy. Anxiety is becoming epidemic. I read yesterday that for the first time in decades, life expectancy in the US and the UK has dropped for the last three years. That has not happened in a Western country, I think, since the end of World War II. The last time that happened in a place was the Soviet Union just before it fell. So we're moving into this place of, this is new, the reality. There's no pointing arrow. It's still there for some people. But where we are now is that the road to human utopia no longer looks so clear, no longer looks so inevitable, and people are freaking out. And the reality that we live in is one of flesh and confusion. Turn to the person next to you 
and say, don't you feel good? (laughs) And just discuss, where have you seen the loss of a clear arrow to now one of confusion? Just discuss for a moment. Let's give you 20 seconds to finish your thought. Okay. Okay. So my guess is this is probably depressing. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is all bad news. Now, I want to introduce something that's really key at this point in time. If you're interested in renewal, this is now a mantra I want you to have for yourself. Whenever you see something on the TV and you're like, oh my goodness, whenever you see something in the world and you say, oh my goodness, whenever you hear something from a friend and you're like, oh my goodness, where are we going? And it just feels like this. Bad news is good news when it comes to renewal. Bad news is good news when it comes to renewal. Why? Because over the last 20 years, for a while, the myth, particularly since 1989 and the fall of communism, it was easy to keep believing the myth. Before the global financial, it was easy to believe the myth. Credit Suisse, before the global financial crisis, said Australians are the richest people in the world. Before the global financial crisis and all these shocks and politics, it looked like, yeah, we're just going to inch our way to utopia. What do you need to do? Just have a coffee. Find that new breakfast place. Take that cheap holiday. Buy that jacket. Do more stuff. And you would come to church and you would hear people give messages and in the back of your mind, or maybe the back of your soul, you'd be like, yeah, okay. Cool, I'll try and do that. Yeah, no worries. And you'd hear about the prayer meeting. And you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that, I, should, I should get to that. I'm a Christian, I should, I should get to that. When worship would happen, you would sing, and maybe sometimes you feel good. Oh, this is, I'm into it today, this is feeling good. Yeah, Jesus, whoa. Okay, what time's this end? Yeah, okay. And you would go, I should read that book. I should get into a growth group. But the formation of the culture, because the myth seemed real, kept you 
from really believing it. You weren't desperate. There wasn't a hunger. Now, for some of you were outliers, and you were. Now, I, I think I was an outlier. But I realized how much I was in the warm bath with the temperature just right. I didn't realize how much I'd just been that frog in the kettle. Realizing there was a fire under that bath and I was slowly heating up and boiling. I do have an electric system. I'm not living on a farm with something under it. (laughs) Bad news is good news because bad news shows us what life without the presence is like. When you next look at that depressing news story, next when you worry about where the world is going to, Next time when you walk into, honestly, walk into a bookstore now and you walk to the public affairs section and it is just freak out, Bill. Everything's freak out, Bill. If they're not freaking out about politics, they're freaking out about the rise of racism, they're freaking out about how the left's going crazy, how the right's going crazy, about the environment, about the potential of war, Russia, you name it, whatever. People are freaking out and when you see that, you go, this is what earth looks like. Nothing is new. This is what earth looks like without the presence of God. And so bad news shows us what life without the presence is like and actually shows up the secular myth and actually says, this is what history has always looked like when it comes to faith. It wasn't this thing that everyone in 1400 believed and was slowly been dropping off, that actually there was a high point in the 1400s, but there was a very low point in the 1700s. And actually when Australia was created, it was described in the 1700s as a post-Christian society. America in the 1700s was actually being described as a post-Christian society. Britain in the 1700s was described as a post-Christian society. And I can give you accounts, if I had more time, of what it was like. You read Charles Simeon, who was a minister at Cambridge in the 1700s, and it makes today's universities look tame. You're talking people being killed regularly in political arguments. You're talking about people having to basically have protective doors so that people wouldn't kill them in their rooms. He couldn't write his sermons because so many people outside were having sex in public outside his window while he's trying to write his sermons. <laughs> I think Sarah's relieved that that's not happening now when she, she writes her, her sermon here. And... and you had the point where the majority of the theological lecturers in Britain at that time were too drunk to even give a lecture. Where churches were filled with the people who were going to church were so caught up in religion. When he, when, he, when he begins his ministry, because he was what they called an enthusiast, which was a term of derision, which you know what that actually means? Yeah, he actually believed it. And he actually had the Holy Spirit. And when he went to church, Trinity in Cambridge, the people in the church, back then you would have, like you would pay your tithe, and if you paid your tithe, you got a key, and that key meant that you could undo that little lock on your seat so you could sit down. So he would speak, he was speaking to, and the people said, we're not turning up. His own wardens, when he asked to have a night service at 7pm for students, actually locked him out of his own church. He then decided to go and actually meet in people's homes. This is one of the times where small groups came back in. Not because, hey, we should do something in community, because he was locked out of the church by other Christians for wanting to preach the gospel and be alive with the Spirit. And you see this, and you can tell this story again and again, that actually it's a boom and bust cycle. Snyder in his book on renewal, would actually say you have a decline within the first generation of Christianity. Some people argue that it took about three or four. And you have this thing, this decline process where if only it was as good. Anyone has a child, all you want is your child to follow God with all their heart. But you can't make it happen. You can do a number of things, but at the end of the day, that child has to decide with their heart whether they want to follow Jesus. And it's the same with generations. Every generation must decide whether it wants to follow on. So therefore, there's this temptation of, we have to decide whether we want to keep going, plus we also have to not rely on our own strength. It's so easy when you've lived in a high point then just to believe it's your own strength. So bad news is good news because we're getting to the point now 
that when it gets so bad, we cannot tolerate it anymore. I read in the Herald Sun yesterday, in the lifestyle section, there was an article. This is the Herald Sun lifestyle section. This is meant to be the conservative newspaper, just to put that out there, the most mainstream newspaper in, uh, sells the most copies in Australia. In, I think it's in Australia. And it was basically, it had an article about marriage. And what it, it had two experts, and what it, it proposed was this. That we're now moving to a new stage of marriage. There's lots of people who are struggling to find people to marry them. And so what we need to do is we need to take romance, intimacy, and sex out of marriage. And we now need to have marriages based on your life goals. So in other words, I want to have children, and I want someone to be an emotional support for me in a consumerist, capitalist, falling apart society where increasingly loneliness is the norm. Okay, so how do you do this? This article, the two experts said, this is where society is going to be saved. You know what we're going to be saved by? From our coming rise of loneliness where you have so many single households now across the Western world. In some cities in Europe, up to almost 50% of now single households. You know what's going to save us according to the Herald Sun lifestyle section? Sex robots. Because if you've got a sex robot, you can buy the exact sex robot that fits your desires. So that doesn't mean you have to find a marriage partner anymore that fits your desires. You actually don't even have to find a marriage partner that you're even attracted to. And this said, this is what this means. The good news is you might be a straight heterosexual woman and you want to have children, but you can't find a guy that you're attracted to. So your mate, who's also a straight heterosexual woman, you can get married. You don't have to have sex with each other you just because you've got your sex robots. And this is going to save the West. And you got one of those moments and you're just like, okay. I don't like to be one of those Christians who freak out. But this is quite freaking out that if this is where it's going. And they're saying, well, the, the thing, the, these things are going to get so good with AI and robotics. It's going to blow your mind. I read that. And I got a choice. I can just go, oh, whatever. I can look after myself. Two, I look at that and go, freak out, Bill. I'm going to freak out. Christians freak out. We're all freaking out. Quick, um, I don't know. Let's just freak out. <laughs> or I can say, I'm actually not going to tolerate this more. But I'm not going to tolerate this anymore, not by getting hyper-religious and getting on buses and going, do you know there's sex robots coming? <laughs> You better not have any sex robots next week. An entire sermon series. Why sex robots are bad. My new book. I actually can't tolerate a culture which is this lost. And I've got compassion for people who, oh my goodness, this, this is where we're at now. We're so lonely that we'll take synthetic men and women and hold them in beds and think that that's intimacy. People in, you know, and this, have we progressed? Have we progressed from the nations that surrounded Israel with stone idols? Now we've just got synthetic Chinese-made sex dolls. We can't tolerate this anymore. And we can't tolerate it for a church to either freak out and fly into religiosity or fly into just irreligiosity and we just don't care. It's all right, we're having coffee after church and there is an amazing place and worship was amazing tonight. So every generation at these moments of decline must choose to align themselves with God's renewal reality. And that's right before us now. That's not a choice. And I think we're at this beginning stage of a transition into this reality and it's already being seen. You used to be at a church where you had a good bucket of people who were like pretty well-functioning, normal people. That's just gone, particularly as you're dealing with emerging generations. We all look nice on the surface. We've all got the same phone, but underneath that, there's just so much brokenness. Regularly in my office, when I encounter people's stories, I just find myself almost in tears of what people have to face. And so much of it comes back to a culture of progress without presence so here we are now okay we don't want to tolerate anymore we want God's future and the problem is that 
when we get to this place that we can't tolerate it anymore and people are discovering this at this point in time, is particularly in a place like Melbourne and we want to get there, like, okay, how do we do this? We know that just doing church bigger and better and more flash with more pizzazz and more shazam, it's not going to get us there. You can attract people. You can, get, you can keep them for 18 months, but they're just going to want more hype and it doesn't work. We know that churches where we then go into these, okay, let's just do community then. Let's just go absolute hardcore community. Let's just get in households and do that. How do you do that when people are so uneducated on even how to have basic human community that they then just fall apart and wash away? Maybe if we can just campaign and legislate our way to a new future, we're actually seeing that playing out around the world, and all it's doing is bringing a renaissance of cultural Christianity. One potential future, which not many people are thinking, which I put out there, is that this thing could be getting so fragile that we could see a massive return of religiosity in a political sense. They could come like that, but it's not going to be presence. We're seeing in places like Poland and Hungary this return of a Christian conservatism, but people are still not going to church. It's still without the presence. So there's this imagination gap. And there's this imagination gap of how do we get to the future? How do we get past these blockages? And renewal always puts us back to this question of asking, what's blocking us from getting to God's future? What's the blockage? And renewal can look at the culture and we can point at the the coming Chinese sex robots who will invade our shores and then their accompanying cousins who are the military versions who could invade countries. Robotics coming. But we're going to start with the place of what is the blockage. And the blockage is in renewal us. It's us. We are part of the culture of flesh. We are part of the culture of not living with the presence. I just want to give you one. I could give so many examples. I just want to give one. It's from the New York Times two days ago. And they talked about, has everyone here heard of FOMO? Fear of missing out. And there's this guy, he's done this schema. He said, first we're at FOMO. But then we came to FOBO. FOBO is fear of better options. And you have a whole paralysis now where people are afraid, if I commit to that, I could be lessening my opportunity to have a better option over here. This is, I mean, forget about the sex robots and they're falling apart of Western culture. We in the church, okay, so let's let's pray then. Okay, I'll come to the prayer meeting, but I'm just going to leave my options open. He says this, I see phobo as an affliction of affluence. In order to have phobo, you must, by definition, have options. It's a byproduct of hyper-busy, hyper-connected world in which everything seems possible, and as a result, you're spoiled for choice. It's also driven by narcissism. People with phobo put themselves and all their needs squarely around the people around them, all of the people adversely affected by their phobo. And you know what is adversely affected by phobo? The chance of the church renewal. He actually says there's now one that comes after that. Foda. Fear of doing anything. We're now in absolute paralysis. Fear of missing out. Fobo. Foda. So we actually can't even do the most basic things. And what you see, I'm not going to read the whole story. In Joshua 3, Israel comes to the edge of the promised land. Moses has passed. Joshua is leading the people and they come to what seems an impenetrable barrier. The impenetrable barrier is the River Jordan. It's flowing, they cannot get across. And the Lord says to Joshua, you're to go ahead. And he constantly says to Joshua, you're to go ahead with courage. You're to go ahead not looking left or right. You'll go ahead just clinging to me and my presence. And before they cross the river, he says this, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. I just want to hang that out there for this moment right now. What if, the God, what if God is saying, at this moment, 
We're facing a raging river Jordan. His future is across there. And he's saying to us, I will do amazing things among you. Do we actually believe that? I think we believe it for some places in Africa. I think we believe it when we hear a story of maybe what's happening in Indonesia. I think we believe that when we hear of stuff happening overseas. Do we believe that for Melbourne? Do we believe that for secular thinking, doubting Melbourne, filled with options? Do we believe that God wants to do an amazing thing in Melbourne? If you do, we need to consecrate ourselves. And what this looks like is that therefore we need to begin to see how our own flesh is blocking us from arriving at God's future. Because in this process, which everything that we've been shaped by the culture said, move away from this, let your ego run free, let your individualism run free, do what you want, follow your desires, your desires will save you. To actually say no to your desires... I think one of the most prophetic artworks of the 20, I don't know if it's done in the 20th century or the 21st century, is Jenny Holzer who does these just electronic signs. And she just has one. I think it was up in New York somewhere she put it. I think it's appeared in different places around the world and she has it at Times Square and stuff like this. Just a running script. And all it says is, is protect me from what I want. And so this sense of when we move into this process of crushing, it leads to new wine. And when we remove the obstacles and we remove the idols and we remove our passivity and we remove our lack of belief and we remove the imagination gap and we remove the past hurts and we remove all of the, yeah, but we've done this before. Try that. The Melbourne spirit of theological defeat. What happens is We see that it's not just about removing flesh. Israel crosses the Jordan when God commands Joshua to have going ahead of them, them carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which is God's presence. And the presence stands in the middle. The men carry it into the middle of the river and they stand there, which would have seemed bonkers. And they stand in the middle like pole bearers with it on their shoulders and it stops the Jordan. The only thing that will stop the rushing river of this time is actually the presence. And it's not just a bad news story about tearing off the flesh. That when the flesh is torn off and the temple is cleared out, that actually that's where the presence begins to fill. And that the flesh, as it's cut out of the church, as we get on our knees and we repent and confess and say, we ask your forgiveness, God. We have not been focused on you. We bought the myths of the culture. And maybe even if we only bought them 10%, we still bought them. And we've just wanted a good personal utopia for ourselves. We've not wanted your future. And was that stuff, that brush is cleared out as the rubbish is brought out of the garage, as the temple is cleaned of idols, his presence can come back in ushering us towards God's future, allowing us to cross the river, to step on the other shore. So what revival then looks like, what renewal looks like, it must begin in miniature. It has to begin in you. If you desire for our culture to be changed and you look at the newspaper articles and you're depressed and you look around and you wonder what's happening with your friends, if you worry about your kids, if you worry about your future, I think God wants to change culture. I have no doubt about that. I have no doubt that God wants to renew. He's done this throughout history. There's no doubt that he wants to revive people and revive culture and revive the church. But at first, it must begin in miniature in you. And so before you worry about a secular culture and what that means is first, you have to desecularize yourself. Desecularize your assumptions. Secularism is progress without the presence. Has your life been one of progressing your personal goals and dreams without the presence? And so now we're back at the start. We're back into that reality of God's invasion of the whole of creation with his presence. And part of his plan 
in this moment between his return and after his death is that actually he wants that presence to fully flow into you. The clearing out of the temple that happens in this time. There's two, there's three temples really at this time. The first one is, yes, he wants the whole of creation to be his temple again. That's where we're heading. Second, he wants the church to be his Holy Spirit dwelling amongst present, powering, real. And thirdly, he wants you. You're a living temple now. It's not in Jerusalem. There's the Wailing Wall stands there, but the temple doesn't stand, and I don't think it's ever going to be rebuilt. Because at this point, you're actually the living temple. Treat your bodies as a temple is not just about not eating fatty foods. It's actually about your being filled with His Spirit, where you walk around and just encountering you is encountering the Shekinah. And to make that happen, you know what we actually have to do? You know what the most radical thing in a secular moment based on the kingship of radical individualism is? Get out of the way. What did Jesus say? I must decrease so He can increase. The problem with the temple is we've got a whole bunch of our junk in there. And now it's like hard rubbish time. So God's willing to be... Okay, that analogy I was going to say. It's going to be like the the council garbage man coming to take your hard rubbish. That's actually true. So it's putting the presence back into you, the temple. And this is easier than you think. This is not a striving. Jesus said, "My, my yoke is light. And so when we do this, when we actually begin to allow the presence to come back into you, you change. Terry's going to talk more about this. But this leads into the fact that what God is wanting to do now in a culture which is crushing people, which promises you everything, as that Marshall Berman quote said, that threatens to destroy everything about you in the world. This will be turned around by a renewal moment. We invite his presence back in. So this now is going to be determined by who is hungry. It's not going to be determined by the best pastors and the best churches or the people with the theological degrees or the most eloquent people or the coolest people or the smartest people. It's going to be determined by who is most hungry at this time. And you know what? Jesus is going to look at it against Melbourne. He doesn't care. He's like, okay, you on board, you on board. He doesn't care your background, where you're from. Are you on board? Are you hungry? Are you willing to lay it all down at my feet? And he wants to do something now. I believe with all my heart this is the moment we're getting to. I think it's just phase one. But the church has to come alive at this moment and there are rumblings. And what's encouraging me as I go around the world talking to people, I hear people asking these questions, people getting on their knees, churches feeling the time to call again, pushing through, we tried it, it didn't work, but actually pushing into what if we ask again, God to move and every move of God begins with the prayer, God revive us again. I'm going to end there and I'm going to come back after our break but I'd like to pray. Jesus, I just want to say, actually I might get you to stand, let's stand. Jesus, I just want to stand in the gap for a moment and just say, we can't tolerate this anymore. We as the church cannot tolerate standing by why our culture run miles from you. We cannot tolerate a culture where people are increasingly beset by a lack of vision and a lack of dreams. We cannot tolerate a culture anymore which is just trending into increased isolation, increased clashing, increased fear. Father, this world is showing us the end price of a world which offers us bucket loads and bucket loads of individualism, but very little meaning, if any. So, Father, we recognize that we're in a culture which is grabbed after progress without presence. So, Father, we want to be a culture which wants to be about your presence. We want to create an alternate culture based on your spirit, based on your living presence, based on your cross, based on you, the Messiah, Jesus. So, I just want to pray now. Spirit, come and begin to speak to people for what they need to do as part of this. This begins individually with everyone. This is not just me up here giving some cool talk. This is actually about you speaking to every person. You want to fill every person in this room with your Holy Spirit. You want to create a hunger in us. I pray, first of all, create a holy discontent. 
with the level of our culture, with the level of our spirituality. Create us in more of a hunger for you. Create us a point where we can't do anything but push into this renewal with you, Jesus. Show us what we need to leave behind, what we need to clear out of the garage, what we need to clear to, to make that temple an open space where your spirit can come and free. Show us the idols that need to go, Jesus. I particularly want to pray in Jesus' name for anyone in here who's feeling a sense of discouragement, which is actually about a script from the culture, not about the reality of what you want to do. I want to thank you, Father, that you want to do wonderful things in these people in their personal lives. I particularly want to pray for people leading in Christian communities. Give them a new sense of refreshment, a sense of alignment from this. I want to thank you, Father, for people who are operating out in the world. Give them a sense of alignment and freshness that they go into those places as actually ambassadors of your presence. And God, please revive us again at this moment, Jesus. In your name, amen.